0: And that's what the CEPP does, is it aligns the demand side of the market along with the supply side of the market that the tax credits tackle with the same goal, which is to accelerate the growth of clean electricity and to cut emissions in the power sector on the order of 80% below 2005 levels by the end of the decade.
1: Welcome to a special episode of Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. Today, we want to take a look at the bills being debated in Congress this week, which could cut power sector emissions dramatically over the next 10 years. To help us make sense of the details of this draft legislation, we've invited expert Jesse Jenkins from Princeton University to explain some of the details and mechanisms in these drafts. And joining him is my colleague Nikos Safos and joining for his first episode is Joseph Mykut, the new director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'll turn it over to Joseph and Nikos now for this great discussion.
2: Good morning. And Jesse, thank you for joining us here on the Energy 360 podcast. Our guest today is Jesse Jenkins. He's an assistant professor at Princeton University and an expert in modeling and uh, interpreting of the power sector and has done a lot of work trying to think through what are the appropriate policy levers to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and target a net zero economy we've invited jesse on today to talk about the bills that are presently being considered particularly in the house of representatives as part of the president's build back better plan and in particular there's some very novel and interesting proposals for how to decarbonize the power sector that uh jesse spent a lot of time thinking about providing policy input for, and we're really grateful that he that he's graciously joined us today to help us and members of our audience understand these mechanisms a little better. So Jesse, thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's, yeah, definitely things are moving quickly in, in Washington these days. So it's, uh, everybody's trying to catch up and figure out what's going on here.
2: Well, hopefully we have a productive conversation and then as things develop, you'll have a good enough experience that you'd like to come back. <laughs> Sounds good.
0: For our listeners, my
2: colleague, Nico Safos, also of CSIS, is here on the line. And he and I are just going to have an informal chat with Jesse about what the state of the policy proposal is, what the goals are, the means by which it might accomplish those goals, and the expected outcomes should the version that we're going to be talking about today, it's uh, September 15th, and we're talking about the Ways and Means draft that's uh, available on their website, what expected outcomes Jesse might think we would see from a sort of power systems perspective, right, given the economic and technological trends that you've researched. I want to focus on two key themes. First of all, the overall theory of change for decarbonizing the power sector that we're seeing emerge out of Congress. I think this is different from what a lot of people had imagined we would look at in terms of public policy generation maybe a year or two ago. It's happening on a relatively fast timescale, so we we want to get an understanding of how this is going to look for the business of electricity suppliers, generators, consumers, should this become law? And then then there, I think there are really interesting questions around policy implementation. What are the key questions that we should be asking? What's helpful from the research community on a relatively rapid time scale as we think about, you know, are these mechanisms going to pass? And in particular, we think about there's a broad set of tools that are being proposed for electricity decarbonization, but I think it's good to start from a grounding place.. US. power sector emissions, about a third of economy-wide emissions. they've Since 2005, they've fallen by about 40%. So things are not going terribly. But as we think about a climate target of net zero by 2050, presidents aiming for 50% reductions economy-wide by 2030, we want to know like the scale of intervention that might be necessary to make those things happen. Jesse, you've done some of the leading work in our country on understanding what an energy system that brings us toward net zero might look like. Maybe a good place to start the conversation is, what's been happening recently? If we don't do anything, are any of those climate targets something we, we might realize anyway? And what are the key things that need to be done by public policy to accomplish those climate targets, if anything at all?
0: Yeah, great question to start off with uh, and set the stage. So, you know, it, let's start with the you know no new policies kind of scenario. So, assume that you know Congress is unable to pass legislation that further accelerates uh, trends in the power sector and uh, and drives decarbonization. I think what we can expect is you know additional modest reductions in emissions in the power sector as solar and wind projects that are economic in certain locations in the country without tax credits as they expire over the next couple of years. Uh, to continue to grow and to take a little bit of market share um, out of uh, the fossil, you know, share of things, or potentially simply to replace uh, retiring nuclear power plants and uh, meet load growth, uh, increases in demand over the next decade. So that is unlikely to produce significant reductions on its own. And what drove most of the emissions reductions over the last, you know, 20 years, uh, 15 years, in addition to the growth of wind power was the substitution of natural gas for coal. So if you go back to the last time Congress was debating energy legislation of this magnitude in 2009, the Waxman-Markey bill, and I think coal was roughly half of our electricity supply and natural gas only 20%. Now those shares have almost reversed with gas up to 35, 40% of our share and uh, coal hovering around I think a quarter or less now. trend is unlikely to continue under current economics. There will be some additional coal retirements, but as natural gas prices are starting to edge back up again, that may slow cost-effective substitution has already happened. And so to summarize, current trends will continue and sort of peter out, I think, from what we saw over the last decade without further policy. And that is going to leave us a very far distance from where we have to be.
3: Let me jump in here then, Jesse, and thank you. Thank you for being here. One of the things that we're all trying to grapple with is we have a lot of levers for reducing emissions in the power sector, right? We have RPSs at the state level. We were talking until recently about a clean electricity standard. Of course, uh, a lot of folks would like to have a carbon price. You know, we have existing tax credits. You know, I think we understand, and Joseph alluded to this, you know, the politics of why we ended up at this in this proposal rather than other proposals. So I don't really want to talk about politics but i would love to hear your thoughts on the mechanics like what do we get from the clean Electricity performance program if you could sort of describe it and the basic structure of it which is you know incentivizing load serving entities to source more electricity from clean sources and and penalize them if they don't what does this structure get us that is similar to other ideas other proposals And what are maybe sort of shortcomings from a big picture sort of design perspective? How closely are we getting to sort of the the optimal design, which of course doesn't really exist in the real world?
0: So, you know, I think, to recap, what we probably expected would be the, the, or the process here uh, going forward, you know, maybe a year or two ago was that, you know, we've seen costs decline for wind and solar dramatically over the last decade, thanks to the subsidies and state RPS policies that have driven market deployment, as well as globally that have dr- driven the supply chains and innovations in, in manufacturing. Um, and, you know, so we've seen a 90% reduction in the cost of solar power, roughly a 90% reduction in the cost of lithium batteries. Which are used for stationary storage as well as electric vehicles, and about a seventy percent reduction, two thirds seventy percent reduction in the cost of wind power. So those are huge changes, and they, you know, I think what we expected and what I, my theory of change was that that would drive the incremental cost of accelerating decarbonization this decade down substantially, so that it really wasn't that much. You know, yes, under business as usual it wouldn't happen, but with a little bit of a nudge from either. A regulatory policy like a clean electricity standard which requires utilities to just add more clean electricity each year or a carbon price a modest carbon price would be enough to accelerate that decade as well and as you know we've had lots of debates over the last few years on twitter about which of those is more likely i lost a bet to noah kaufman most recently from columbia now at the the white house about who would get more co-sponsors for either carbon prices bills or clean electricity standard bills in the last congress i will admit i lost that bet but the idea was, you know, we're, we're almost there, so now we can use the sort of the sticks to get us the rest of the way there rather than carrots. You know, fast forward to the current Congress and the reality of a 50-50 Senate and basically no willingness on the part of the Republican Party to put forward a substantive climate policy proposal besides additional RDD and d policies, research, development, demonstration, deployment. We did see that in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and credit to those who negotiated that bill. Those are very important measures to improve this toolkit we have and work on the technologies we need in the 2030s and the 2040s. But those measures do not drive significant decarbonization this decade. And no proposal that the Republican Party has put forward so far uh, would do so. And so that leaves us with only one route for climate policy in this Congress, and that is passage of legislation through the process that can be passed on a simple party line majority vote. There are restrictions on what can be done in the budget process, and a clean electricity standard is out the window uh, in that context because it is not a budgetary policy, it is a regulatory mechanism would be germane to a reconciliation bill, right? It's a tax. It raises revenue, a lot of it. And there certainly have been people who pushed for that. But politically speaking, you know, the president threw out a gas tax as a way to fund the bipartisan infrastructure bill because it would impact you know, households and raise taxes on those who make less than $400,000, which he pledged not to do. And it's seen as politically too dangerous to pursue. That was off the table. And so what we're left with is two main components that you see in the two big packages that were released this week and marked up in the Ways and Means Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committees, respectively. The first is a set of expanded and more robust tax credits that build on the policies that we've had over the last decade or two that have driven the growth of wind and solar power. And so a a very robust continuation of those tax credits Over the next decade and expansion to a lot of other things technologies like uh, energy storage and hydrogen and carbon capture and then the clean electricity performance program or payment program depending if you're talking about the house or the senate the CEPP, which is an alternative to a clean electricity standard that works through budgetary means and is designed like a clean electricity standard but through different mechanisms to drive the demand side of the wholesale market Right. The retail suppliers who purchase electricity from generators or generate it themselves and then sell it on to you and I and, you know, customers and and others to steadily increase the amount of clean electricity in their portfolios over the next decade. And it does that by financially rewarding them, paying effectively for the additional cost of that clean electricity if they successfully increase the share of clean electricity in their portfolio by four percentage points per year from 2023 to 2030. If they fall short of that four percentage point growth threshold, they are instead subject to a payment to DOE for the shortfall. So if they fall short, they're paying DOE. If they hit the goal, they are getting paid by DOE. And so it's a set of you know, budgetary mechanisms, right? expenditures and revenue that are designed to provide financial incentives for retail suppliers to steadily increase their clean energy share. It's an important tool for a number of reasons to complement the tax credits, which focus on the supply side. So the tax credits make clean electricity generation cheaper and drive more supply into the market, but that supply has nowhere to go if it doesn't have a customer. And you need some motivation on the demand side of the market as well to go purchase that clean electricity and add it to your portfolio, some financial skin in the game for retailers and load serving entities. And that's what the CEPP does, is it aligns the demand side of the market along with the supply side of the market that the tax credits tackle with the same goal, which is to accelerate the growth of clean electricity and to cut emissions in the power sector on the order of 80% below 2005 levels by the
3: end of the decade. Can I ask you just one follow-up on that? Because I think it's interesting that you describe it as complementing the supply side of the ledger. I guess I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit to sort of first principles, right? I mean, you talked about the 90% reduction in the cost of solar, you know, for those of us who are used to sort of thinking in uh, levelized cost of electricity or less levelized cost of energy terms, you know, wh- when you think about where solar and wind is today, where does it go if you have both the tax credits and the clean electricity performance standard? And, and where does it go in particular because when you think, and you articulate that really well, when you think about the challenge for the next decade, it's really not just purely deploying solar and wind and other low carbon technologies, although that's the objective. The goal is to get them to be cheaper, essentially, to run in coal and gas, right? Because that's what you're trying to, to display. So I'm just trying to understand volumetrically, like what, what does it do to the cost of deploying these resources? So the good news is that once wind and solar are
0: deployed, they have no fuel cost, and basically no variable costs. So they're effectively free when they're available. Of course, you got to pay for the capital, so they're not you can't charge zero dollars consistently. But from the perspective of electricity markets, which effectively dispatch different generators in order for to most expensive, just like a typical supply curve you might see for oil in the global market, um, and clear the market price at the most expensive of those generators each hour or five-minute interval, depending on the market. That ensures that wind and solar always dispatch first, effectively, unless you're at um, the minimum for the you know thermal power plants the, you know, that you need to keep online to maintain reliability. And so, you know, they they're pretty much guaranteed once they're built to displace some thermal generation. Now, one of the challenges we have is that that could just as easily be nuclear power with zero emissions as it could be coal or natural gas. And in certain contexts, that's what we've seen. We've seen nuclear power plants retire and then. The growth in wind and solar that would have otherwise reduced emissions and displaced coal or gas is now simply used to sort of run to stay in place, right? We gotta catch <laughs> up to where we were <laughs> from a emissions perspective. And so the clean electricity payment program helps by preventing backsliding effectively. It provi- you know, if a utility's clean electricity share is declining annually, then they're falling even more short of that growth. And so it puts a value on all clean electricity in the country, including all of the stuff that's already deployed. Such as the existing nuclear fleet, which is half of our clean electricity. And uh, it provides incentives to continue to grow and get those wind and solar facilities deployed along with the tax credits that make them cheaper um, so that they can continue to, in the short run, dispatch and displace uh, fossil fuels. What we see in most modeling scenarios that are starting to emerge for, you know, considering scenarios like this is that wind and solar power grow to be roughly 50%, 40 to 50% of our electricity supply over the next decade. That's a four or five-fold increase from today, four or four and a half-fold uh, increase. So big growth over the decade with natural gas plants and maybe a few coal plants continuing to supply flexibility and then preserving the existing hydro and nuclear to get to a clean energy share somewhere between 75 and 80% of our electricity by 2030, up from about 40% today. I think
2: this is like a really interesting policy design and I, I'll admit, I'm, I'm not an expert in the power sector. This is why we have you, because I think it is a complicated area. And so it, it'd be really helpful for me if we can just kind of talk through, if we had a system like this, what does it look like? Like, say I run a small utility, what are my inputs and, and what are my incentives look like in 2025 under one of these proposals? Like the house one as it exists today is an example, like how does this factor into the decision-making that, you know, an executive at a company is going to be going through?
0: Yeah, so let's take the example. There's sort of probably two examples you could talk about. One is a vertically integrated kind of regulated utility. And the other is like a Duke or an Excel or you know Portland General Electric whatever. And then you've got unbundled retail supplier that is in a competitive market context.
2: Let's start in a competitive market and then we can talk about some of the, mon- the monopolies.
0: So what those retailers need to do and what their job is, is effectively to buy a portfolio of supply from generators under a variety of contracts to hedge volatility and then pass on that cost of both the hedging and the supply to their customers, their retail customers, collecting retail rates from utility bills and then paying the generators and keeping some uh, portion of that as their profit. So now what they want to do is take a look at the market as their contracts expire and they're going to see much cheaper wind and solar power and energy storage, because there's a new 30% tax credit for storage in the the Ways and Means uh, bill as well. And they're going to look for contracts with existing nuclear power plants that are potentially cheaper than, than adding new supply. Um, and they're going to assemble a portfolio of that supply to meet their demand. And a you know some amount of that wind and solar, really cost effective without the Clean Electricity Payment Program because of the tax credits maybe two percentage points worth of growth per year, hypothetically, right, to add to their supply. But they're also going to have this incentive from the Clean Electricity Performance Program to increase and accelerate that rate beyond what would otherwise happen just with the tax credits, and then get paid a rebate effectively, a grant from the Department of Energy to cover that additional cost of that faster progress and slightly more expensive supply mix that they would otherwise have.
2: And that expense could be a lot of things, right? Because the cost of supplying a bunch of transitioning the system is not just procuring the cleaner power. It might be buying storage. It might be changing the transmission system, right? There's a basket of, of investments.
0: Just to comment on that, I mean, that's why it's so important that there is something focused on the retail supplier side of the equation because they're the one that assembles that portfolio. right. The generators don't do that, right? I mean, maybe they bundle some wind and solar and try to sell you a PPA or your wind and and storage or solar and storage. But the only person that really assembles that portfolio is the retail supplier and and so they need to have an incentive to do that and to think about how all the pieces come together and then they'll get the financial payments if they make that portfolio work and grow the clean energy share at the targeted rate now i should say there's nothing to prevent them from going beyond four percentage points growth per year which is the target in the house bill in fact every megawatt hour they add beyond that they get paid an additional 150 dollars per megawatt hour which is the incentive in the house bill so it's a, it becomes a voluntary effort you know, you go as far as the economics dictate, right? And as long as it costs less than $150 a megawatt hour on a levelized cost basis to add one more megawatt, then a supplier is financially incentivized to do that.
2: And what do you do when you get to 85, 90, 95%? I mean, you can't go to 102%. So what's the boundary here?
0: Exactly. So the, the bill contemplates that, of course, and there's both you know the math of it which is that if you're at 80% you can't add or 90% you can't add 4% per year for more than a couple of years before you're at 100 and something and also that we know from all kinds of studies that it is very technically possible and very affordable surprisingly affordable to get to a 75-80% clean electricity share because you can retain basically all of your natural gas capacity and just run it less often and so it can still provide all the reliability and flexibility you need and reduce emissions and there's enough in that 20 percentage points you know, energy share to absorb all that gas. As you go beyond that, and as my research has really focused on for, for several years, you need more and more clean, firm technologies that can substitute for that natural gas. And most of those technologies are technologies that you can depend on any time of year for as long as you need them the same way you do for thermal power plants today. Most of those technologies are either too costly or too immature today to really stand in and replace natural gas at scale that they they, We need to make them ready by 2030, and a lot of the policies in the Ways and Means Tax Package and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill will push those technologies, like advanced geothermal, advanced nuclear, carbon capture, clean hydrogen, all of that is going to move forward under those incentives. But those technologies are going to pick up the baton in 2030. And so- the bill recognizes all those technical challenges and the economics of going beyond 80%, 85%. And so any supplier that is at an 85% clean share is exempted from any of the underperformance penalties or payments. So they are effectively can move forward voluntarily if it makes financial sense for them to continue to do so. If There's still low-hanging fruit for them to tap, and it costs less than $150 a megawatt hour. They, sh- they can move forward as far as they want, and then they can stop, and they don't have to go any further. And so, you know, that's sort of the, the mechanism to deal with that. And it's an important, you know, recognition of the increasingly challenging economics and the increasingly challenged reliability needs of a, you know, very high shares of clean electricity beyond, you know, 80, 85%.
2: Great. Okay. I've got one more. I know Nikos has a lot of stuff he wants to cover too, but $150 per megawatt hour. Right. So we have, we have like increasing system costs from bringing out a bunch of new clean power. The incentive side of things is, I believe $150 per megawatt hour of addition of clean energy above this threshold. There's a penalty, which I th- is $40 a megawatt hour. From your modeling experience, from your general knowledge, like, you know, how should we think about these numbers? Are they well calibrated? I ask you not where they come from. I know things come out of Congress for a variety of reasons, but from a ballpark perspective, do you think this is in line with the kinds of targets that we have for clean energy?
0: Yeah, so the $150 sounds like a lot of money, right? $150 a megawatt hour. The typical wholesale electricity price is $35 or $40 a megawatt hour. The production tax credit is worth $25 a megawatt hour at full value. It's currently, I think, $18 or $15. Um, So this is a big number, it looks like, except that it is a one time payment for the increase in clean energy that you achieve that year. So it's basically paying you to bring online all of that new clean energy that you're going to have to keep in your portfolio for at least the rest of the program and you know, hopefully beyond that. And so it, you should think about it as really paying upfront to cover the next 10 years or so, or eight years, 10 years, 12 years, whatever contract you're signing, whatever generator you're amortizing. And so it really is an upfront payment. It's more sort of like a combination of the production tax credit and the investment tax credit in the sense that it comes upfront like the ITC, but it's in a dollar per megawatt hour number like the PTC. If you like discount that $150, it's sort of the equivalent of a cash flow. Over ten years of maybe eighteen dollars a megawatt hour. Over twenty years, it's maybe more like seven or eight dollars a megawatt hour. So you know that's not huge, but it is a substantial chunk of the levelized cost of these contracts um, that you might be looking at signing, or the cost of adding another wind or solar generator that you know might have a levelized cost of only thirty dollars or something. And so it, it's there to top up the. The wind and solar tax credits and other tax credits and cover some of those system integration costs that you were mentioning that aren't specific to the project, the wind or solar project, but are part of the adding transmission or adding storage or signing different hedging contracts to manage the variability. You know that add, that can cover those costs as well. So you know we're doing modeling now in my group at Princeton. Others are going to crank things out as you know now that we know what the numbers are in the bill to sort of see how the combination of the tax credits and that hundred and fifty dollar payment interact to you know, drive clean energy share. I got to say the tax credits are more robust than I expected. And you know, the more robust the tax credits are, the less work the financial incentive from the clean electricity payment program needs to do and vice versa. So if the tax credits get whittled down in the Senate, you got to do more work with the CPP, all else equal.
2: Let me ask a naive question because that's not strictly intuitive to me. Right. So if the generation side subsidies are lowering prices and some of the, a lot of the cost here is like just the transition cost of making new investments, closing down other plants, like, you know, hiring the right workers, whatever that may be. And even a, a stronger push on the supply side from all this cheap, clean energy doesn't, you know, what we're doing is supercharging this process with the CEPP. It's not clear to me that the CEPP needs to do less work.
0: Yeah, so the way you can think about it from a financial perspective is that you're right. Those are the dynamics at play. If you make the supply side cheaper, the savings from that cheap supply can offset the incremental costs of the other stuff, the transmission, the storage, the worker transition, whatever. And so there is a combination of tax credits that are high enough that could get you to an 80% clean electricity share you know, or somewhere in that ballpark without raising rates and without needing the CPP from just a pure economics perspective. What the CPP does, though, as again, is it focuses the supply side of the, you know, the, re- or the retailer demand side of the market and gives them a financial skin in the game, which I think is you know, from a behavioral perspective, a behavioral economics perspective, not just a raw financing, is invaluable just alone. And it's the only policy that has the ability to preserve all of the progress we've made so far, because it prevents backsliding. right? It means you're paying $40 a megawatt hour If you're lowering your clean energy share each year and $40 megawatt is a lot like that's the wholesale electricity price. So, you know, it will preserve the existing nuclear fleet as a foundation to keep rapidly reducing emissions, which wouldn't happen if we just have the tax credits. There is a some new existing nuclear PTC in the uh, production tax credit in the Ways and Means bill. It's a complicated formula that I haven't fully wrapped my head around. It's like worth $15, but not if you're making enough money, in which case it's reduced through some complicated formula down to something else like $3. So anyway, that may or may not be, my guess is it's not enough to offset the impact of the production tax credits on wholesale prices and keep the existing nuclear fleet around. So really, you need the CPP to preserve the foundation of progress that we've made so we can keep driving emissions down instead of replacing clean generation with new clean generation. So there's a couple of reasons why we really need it, even besides the raw economics. But there is a bit of we can adjust the payment levels in light of the tax credit package. And we'll see what, what that looks like in the end.
2: Great. Well, I want to pin this kind of like the sort of are we applying too much of an engineering mind to these complex financial models? Because that's been one of the concerns we've seen about the proposal so far. But I want to make sure that we have room to touch on a couple other issues. Nikos, do you want to lob anything at Jesse at this moment?
3: Yeah, let me just jump on one issue that I know there's been a lot of discussion around, which is sort of the structuring of this thing, right? I mean, you talk about assembling a portfolio, you may be in a liberalized market, you may be having to do kind of contracts and chasing the clean electricity sort of out there. I mean, it seems that the answer is, we're going to ask DOE to figure this out for us. But like, you know, how do you think about this electricity market structured, right? Where you're sort of on the one hand, you have wholesale markets, on the other hand, you have to keep track of the clean electrons. Like, you know, how does this whole system work?
0: This is one of the other, you know, there's many challenges to the design of the clean electricity payment or performance program. One of them is that it has to work in all 50 states with a diversity of regulatory and market structures, right? We do not have a uniform electricity sector in this country. We've got a very Byzantine set of different rules and laws across the whole country. And so it has to be an incentive structure that can work for the fully unbundled competitive supplier in Texas and for the vertically integrated You know, traditionally regulated utility in Mississippi and the uh, municipal utility in Seattle or Austin, right? You know, any any of the above. A lot of the details on implementation will be will be worked out by the Department of Energy. It's a grant program and a payment program that is implemented by the agency. What the bill is, you know, pretty clear about is that retail supplier will have to demonstrate in order to qualify their clean electricity, that they have exclusive rights to the relevant attributes is the language in the title. And that's a nod to the use of attribute tracking markets, which are very well developed for state renewable portfolio standard compliance or voluntary clean electricity procurements. Because when you sell electricity into the grid, inject it physically, it just goes where it goes based on the physics. And when you sell into a wholesale market, it's a multilateral market. And so it's just you sell in and somebody buys out and you're not matched with each other. And so there's no real way to track who gets to claim the clean megawatt hours in that context, except for through attribute tracking. So what happens is you generate a clean megawatt hour and the megawatt hour and an attribute are both generated. And the attribute is basically a certificate that says, you know, this is generated by this generator at this time with these characteristics. And that may qualify you for one or more of the various state renewable portfolio standard policies. It may qualify you for this federal payment program. And then who owns that attribute is who gets to claim the clean megawatt hour. And so that can flow in a contract with power. It can be yours because you own the generator and you keep it, or it can be sold completely unbundled separate from the electrons. And one of those three options is going to be, you know, work for any utility in the country, Uh, any retail supplier in the country, and all should be available via the DOE implementation, I would expect. And so, again, exactly the details on like, you know, how those payments or how those transfers occur, how do you certify the attributes, which tracking systems are going to get designated, all that goes to DOE. But I should note, there are existing attribute tracking systems that span the entire country. And if DOE has to implement this program in a year, I would expect them to just designate and deputize existing infrastructure that is good at this kind of thing. And now they'll add a new federal attribute that they'll track um, from all clean sources. I know we're running short on time. there's one I think important issue that I want to flag. So when we talked about sort of the, the plan A was do carbon price or CES, clean electricity standard. The pivot to tax credits and CEPP in the budget context has some inefficiencies to it. I'll be the first to admit from an economic perspective, right subsidizing clean energy is, le- is less efficient than taxing and penalizing dirty energy if what you want to do is reduce the dirty energy. However, it has some important distributional outcomes, and in the budget context, it allows clean electricity goals to be tied to other economic goals in important ways, and both of those things are happening here. So I'll stress that the tax credits making clean energy cheaper and the Clean Electricity Performance Program paying retail suppliers for the incremental cost that remains effectively shifts the cost of this once-in-a-generation transition to a cleaner electricity system off of the backs of, of electricity customers, and on to the much more progressive federal tax code, which is likely to get even more progressive under the reforms that the Congress is considering as part of this budget. So if just from a kind of equity, fairness, progressiveness perspective, paying for this clean electricity transition via federal taxes is a much fairer distribution of that cost than paying for it in utility bills, which often hit the lowest income hardest. That's been one of the principal critiques of a clean electricity standard overall is that it doesn't generate any revenue and therefore can't address the distributional concerns that a carbon tax can. In this context, that's not the case. We can address the distributional concerns. Additionally, all of the tax credits are tied to goals around prevailing wages and apprenticeship programs and bonus tax credits available for domestic content. And I think that when you look at that package as a whole, it's very clear that the goal of this policy, I mean, again, this is the Build Back Better policy, right? It's the, not the climate bill. It's the economic policy bill. Is, uh, the goal of the policy is threefold, right? It's to, it's, it, when you look at the energy package, it's to drive cleaner electricity, lower energy costs for consumers, and create and sustain good jobs in this country, right? And all three of those goals can be achieved in this sort of tax and spending context, Whereas, you know, carbon tax and a clean electricity standard, they just say buy more of this stuff from wherever it comes from. That's it, right? There's, you can't tie it to the economic goals in the same way the tax credits are um, in, in this sort of context. And so I think those are important features of the overall package that I think, you know, are going to have a big impact on the economy and on customers' electricity bills and the cost of a new vehicle, right? The, the EV tax credits have a similar impact. And so there may be inefficiencies, but there are also distributional benefits, and politics is all about distribution too.
2: Yeah, you and I have had plenty of back and forth about, you know, how do we get the distributional outcomes right? I think that's the intent. And if we can reside for a couple more minutes, I think, you know, these are complex mechanisms. And the extent to which they will secure the outcomes, like the ones you've just described, is something that, like, I think policy analysts need to try and figure out, right? And so what are the things you're watching for in your research or in your analysis? That would undercut the storyline you just presented, right? Where do these benefits not accrue to ratepayers because of the way the system's designed? Where does federal spending not get deployment of clean electricity because of gaming of the system? Where does having multiple price points for marginal clean electricity sales cause ar- arbitrage opportunities that are going to enrich people without providing the benefits that the policy is meant to secure? There's a lot
0: of kind of critiques and or providing them at a higher cost, is which is more likely, but yeah.
2: Yeah, sure. Right. You know, what are the things you're looking for and, and what are the places where you think there are either like changes or real oversight via DOE or at the state level as these systems get implemented? Should something like this pass? Where do we need to be paying attention to the details?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when you're seeing a package of policies like this that are all implemented at the same time, the big question is always, what's the interaction effect of all of these things, right? You can do one thing at a time and it's sort of easier to understand its impact. But these are complex systems. The economy is complex. The power system is complex. And so I think you need energy and economic modeling to try to understand what the interactions of these um, policies are going to be. That's what the repeat project at Princeton is working on now is to try to do rapid energy policy evaluation and get some information out to the public in the next couple of weeks about the interaction of these policies. I'd also be interested in what happens when you take one of the planks away. right? If the tax credit package gets much weaker or if the CEPP is struck from the bill, what happens? There are some legitimate design uh, issues with the House bill that are progressively being worked on. Uh, Many of them were contemplated by the designers and addressed in the current draft. Others have not been addressed effectively in the current legislative text, but there's certainly an intent to do so. And so we'll see how the text evolves. The legislative process is like the most cruel version
2: of peer review that you can imagine.
0: Yes, especially on the timelines that we're, we're talking about here. So, yeah, there are some moving pieces still in the policy design, and I would expect the politics of the Senate to further change the design of the whole package and particularly the clean electricity payment program uh, or performance program. So, uh, you know, I'm very keenly interested in what does that look like on the Senate side? What are the levers that are changed or struck or transformed? Uh, and how does that interact with everything else that's going on to kind of shift the incentives? Basically, does it still get the job done? You know, because the primary thing is let's get something that passes and let's get something that gets the job done from a decarbonization perspective. And I think there's a lot of combinations of policies that can do both of those. But we got to get that one through the Senate and back to the House or, you know, from that whatever conference with both. So, yeah, that's where I think I'll have to leave it. But those are the kinds of things I'm looking at.
2: Great. Well, we, uh, we, respecting your time, I think we should wrap up. Everyone here uh, deeply appreciates your perspective and how much energy you put into helping us all understand these kinds of mechanisms. So thank you for your time.
1: Thanks to Jesse, Joseph, and Nikos for joining us this week. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments on these important issues as we go forward. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.